This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. We often hear things like, our economy is really bad, or our economy is doing fantastic. But what even is Malaysia's economy? How does it work? Do we lean to the left or the right? How did we go from being the Asian tiger once upon a time to where we are today? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Geoffrey Williams, an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. Welcome to the show, Geoffrey. So there's probably no clear-cut answer to this, you know, as it is on a spectrum, right? But if, let's say, we consider countries like um, Switzerland, Finland, New Zealand, um, slightly uh, slightly or very much so left-wing in terms of the economical, um, the way their, their economy is run, um, and countries like the US who, you know, are all about just completely, um, you know, free market, very little government intervention, where does Malaysia fit in the spectrum? Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me again. I think it's not as easy as, 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 uh, as it sounds to say that Malaysia is either on one side or on the other side. Mm. Um, what we're really interested to think about when we're talking about left and right is the level of government intervention, really, is whether, whether you have an interventionist government or a non-interventionist government. But if that's also too limited in a way to try to understand that discussion because we also want to know about how much the government is providing in terms of social welfare support because that the, the countries that you mentioned New Zealand and uh, Switzerland Sweden and so on they are characterized as being countries which have a really quite solid system of social welfare right. support whereas if you compare that to the United States the social welfare support is actually quite limited and often it's delivered through private sector and what that means is a lot of people have nothing at all so it's not completely it's not universal it's not a universal system so there is that uh, these are some of the elements that we can take into account one is how much does the government involve itself in in the economy Mm. compared to allowing the market to run itself And then what is the role of the government when it involves itself in the economy? So you would find actually in the United States, the the American government does involve itself a lot in the economy in terms of total federal spending and state level spending. It's really quite high in uh, the the involvement of the government in debt in in terms of total debt in in the economy is actually relatively high. But it doesn't necessarily involve itself in businesses it doesn't involve itself in regulating the market. It doesn't involve itself in private enterprise. It stays out of all of that. Um, and, but it does invest heavily in things like, um, like the military and certain aspects of um, federal social support. But as I mentioned before, the support is not as universal as it would be in some European countries, for example. Now, so if you view it like that, you're really sort of thinking, how much does the government allow the market to um, to run itself, really? Because the economic philosophy would be that to a first approximation, the market is the best way of dealing with economic problems. Mm. And that individuals, whether you're an individual consumer or household, or you're a, a firm or a company, 
by interacting with each other in a market transaction, you're going to get a better economic outcome. And that's because it's much more efficient, actually, for people to get involved in. I know what I want in my life, and therefore I don't need a civil servant from Putrajaya to come and help me do my shopping at the grocery. Right. So <laughs> I don't need that. I can make the decision myself. And, and the grocer who's selling me all of the stuff, he doesn't need the the civil servant from Putrajaya to tell him how to run his shop because right. he knows his customers. And, and so the government has no business interfering in that sort of thing. And of course, that's much wider when you think about enterprises of very of different types, um, of different sizes, and also in different industries, financial organizations and so on. So generally speaking, you would say that you wouldn't really want the government to involve itself in that too much mm. because to a first approximation, the market is better at, at solving that problem. But what we know is that the market left to itself will have gaps and it will fail. We call it market failure. And many areas where the market fails involve these issues of social welfare support. And then it becomes very important because you see that the market is very, uh, it's, it's very good at dealing with efficient resource allocation, but it's not so good at dealing with equitable resource allocation. Right. So once, once you've gone through the market process, you will tend to find some people are richer and some people are poorer. Some people have access to social welfare um, and some people don't. Some people have access to pensions and some people don't. Some people have access to good quality healthcare and they don't, education and, and all of that. And so the market can deliver an efficient allocation of resources, generally speaking, to a first, first shot, but it doesn't deliver necessarily an equitable outcome. And that's one of the reasons why we would justify the involvement of the government. Hmm. But here in Malaysia, actually, what you find is that the government involves itself um, very much in market activity, right. particularly through GLCs and the subsidiaries of GLCs, which are huge. I mean, they are massive in numbers. I mean, we know the big name GLCs, the banks and whatever, in every area we can see a GLC at federal level and at state level, but they have literally tens of thousands of subsidiary companies associated with the GLCs. And so actually the influence of the GLCs in actual business activity is massive. And that's government intervention in the marketplace. And of course, we know that the government involves itself a lot in regulation of markets, giving people licenses, for example, um, and even to the point of regulating prices for certain types of goods. And so, but at the same time, we see that there are gaps in where the government involves itself, but we've seen that a lot now during the COVID crisis. We've seen that there are gaps in healthcare, we've seen there are gaps in social welfare coverage for people who've lost their job, we've seen gaps in pension funding. And so we can see that it's not so much how much the government is involving itself in the economy, but where it's involving itself. So if you were to put it on this left-right spectrum, if you were to ask me, mm -hmm. I would say it's more interventionist, and that would be more on the left. And it's not, as many of uh, my colleagues, particularly the Malaysian <laughs> development economists, make claims that uh, the Malaysian economy is somehow neoliberal, which is a market-oriented, market-based approach. It's not, in my view. It's not. It's a highly interventionist 
So another aspect when we are talking about, um, you know, the, the the economy of a country is how easy it is to conduct business. So when we compare to, you know, other countries, um, you know, how easy is it to conduct, conduct businesses in Malaysia? So there are some private sector indicators and there's a, a World Bank indicator mm. on ease of doing business. And actually, if you think about it overall, according to the World Bank, Malaysia is actually quite a nice place to um, to do business. And certainly in Asia, as the, you know, the, the Asia and Southeast Asia region, it's a really very positive and good place. In fact, in some instances, it ranks um, very high in the world. For example, it ranks uh, second in the world for um, protecting minority investors, for example. But, this index produced by the World Bank looks at 190 different countries. Some areas where Malaysia doesn't perform too well, for example, starting up a business out of 190 companies, Malaysia is ranked 126. So when you start or trying to start a company, set up a company, um, it's not as good as some of its um, competitors. But then once the company is set up and run, Malaysia ranks really very well. Mm. And, um, and it's been improving over time because the various governments um, have been making changes, you know, through, through MITI and through the um, Economic Planning Unit, through the various ministries, they've been making changes to try to improve the environment for people to set up and run businesses. And so there has been an improvement over time. But it's very, very important that you keep an eye on that because whatever improvements you make here, you have to remember other countries, particularly close countries in the region, Indonesia and uh, Vietnam, they're also making these changes too. Mm. And so in terms of attracting foreign investors, for example, or even keeping Malaysian investors here in, in Malaysia rather than having them relocate to somewhere quite close, um, you always have to look at how you are performing comparatively. And so it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a destination, it's a constant journey. Historically, Malaysia has done really very well. Right. Now, you know, I'm very curious to know, Joffrey, how our you know, economic landscape has transformed um, over the years. Um, what did Malaysia's economy look like upon independence? What did we look like at independence? Um, and, and how have we transformed over the years? Most economies go through stages of economic growth, okay. where to begin with, they will use the resources that they have available to them. And these are primarily natural resources, physical resources, and of course, people. Historically, um, most economies begin as agricultural economies, or agrarian economies. right? And so historically in Malaysia, a lot of the activity that was going on was around what we call primary commodities, things such as palm oil and rubber and um, various agricultural um, products. But then what happens is that as you're more successful at um, using those uh, resources that you have available, you can accumulate wealth and then that wealth turns into capital. When you have capital, you can reinvest that capital and then you move into a different type of um, economic activity. Now, sometimes the government plays a big role in doing that. So in Malaysia, since independence, there have been a series of Malaysia plants. And of course, we're expecting to see the next incarnation soon. Apparently, it's already written and it's ready to come out. So 
in Malaysia's case, the government has actually played a role through these Malaysia plans as a part of the developmental process. And so it's set up various institutions, financial institutions, for example, to provide development funds. It's dealt with um, collectivization in plantations, for example, Felder, Felcra, that sort of thing. It's set up GLCs in strategic um, areas, all manner of I mean, finance, uh, manufacturing cars, whatever it is. And that has helped to push the development process um, and to encourage the adoption of technology, which helps to improve productivity. And then you move into higher value um, types of production. And of course, underneath all of that, it's very important to invest in education mm. and training and also research and development. Now, investment in education and training in Malaysia has been very good in terms of outcomes, literacy and, and uh, numeracy and um, outcomes at school level. Investment in research and development has not been so good. And that means that Malaysia doesn't have um, very much by way of innovation. It tends to adopt technologies from overseas rather than to create technologies itself. And so as you move into that stage of development, that type of activity becomes much more important. The idea that you're using technologies more effectively, that you're creating it yourself, you're absorbing it yourself. The capacity to absorb technologies, of course, is related to the education level that you have. So Malaysia has gone through all of those stages in different ways. People often like to compare Malaysia's growth with let's say South Korea, because right. there was a time when per capita income was the same in both countries. And yet South Korea has been um, much more successful in terms of per capita income and Malaysia um, has grown significantly, but less so. Hmm. And people often ask, well, you know, what are the causes of that and why did that happen? And I think the reason for that is that Malaysia is just different to South Korea. <laughs> they have a, it's a different population and it's a different landscape. It's a different environment. They have different trading, um, a trade, different trading matrix. They've made choices to invest in different aspects of the economy. Malaysia has um, had access to oil, for example, uh, through Petronas, and that has helped significantly in terms of um, providing revenues and uh, resources to the economy as a whole, particularly the, the, to provide revenues for the government. But it may have taken, uh, taken your eye off the need to invest in other forms of activities. Similarly, Malaysia is very heavily dependent on palm oil, for example. It's massive. I mean, 70 billion ringgit of revenues through um, trade this year from palm oil is very, very significant. And for me, Actually, these are important aspects of the um, development process. But what it means is that you're relying on these primary resources rather than a place like Korea, which doesn't necessarily have those same type of resources, has had to shift to technology-based, um, more or higher value technology-based activities because it didn't have access to those resources. So, Geoffrey, when it comes to the economy, one aspect people always bring up is this idea of foreign capital. Now, what exactly does that mean and how much does the inflow of foreign capital shape Malaysia's economy? Okay, so people often uh, want to encourage foreign direct investments for two main reasons. The first is that it adds to the total investment pot 
you have domestic investment and then you can bring in foreign investment and you have a, a larger investment amount available um, in the in the domestic economy so you have more money and that's also that's always very um, very valuable but this a second reason why it makes sense to encourage foreign direct investment is that the foreign companies often bring new technologies with them and these technologies can be in the form of production technologies but also management technologies and that adds to the diversity of the development process new ways of doing things new approaches um, and that's really valuable and it supplements and complements and augments everything that you would have domestically and so from that perspective it's it can be really very valuable particularly if you're in a in a position where you don't have a lot of domestic investment. So for Malaysia, I think it's not so much that Malaysia is short of domestic investment. Malaysia does have very um, uh, good resources into, uh, you know, to access domestic investment. Um, but of course, having more money for investment is always better. But one way in which Malaysia does benefit a great deal from foreign direct investment is through this technology transfer process and also management transfer process. And that helps to build not just the, the relationship in terms of the company that's investing here, but also a trade relationship because one investment is very closely related to foreign trade. Mm. So if you have a good relationship with countries that are bringing companies here, then you get to trade backwards, if you, if you like, as well. And that can help through your supply chain because it, it gives uh, greater opportunities for smaller companies to provide not just to the foreign investor here, but also back, um, back in their home country or their host, you know, the country that they came from. So encouraging that is always very good. It's always very good. Now, in the case of Malaysia, there has been a trend decline in net foreign direct investment. And what that means is actually quite a lot of Malaysian companies are investing overseas, oh. particularly in close countries around Southeast Asia. So one of the reasons that they're doing that is that they, they can see advantages to go overseas in terms of access to market. I mean, Vietnam, for example, is three times the size of Malaysia. So they have a much bigger market. Um, Indonesia is nine times the size of Malaysia. So sometimes it's easier for you, instead of producing stuff here in Malaysia and then sending it over, transporting it and trading it, it's easier for you just to build your outfit in one of these countries with a bigger market and do that. And so Malaysian companies are actually very, um, uh, uh, very active in doing that. So when we see a trend decline in uh, net foreign direct investment, since we, we've seen that since about 2016, this is an indicator, not that we're getting less and less in inflow of foreign direct investment, although there's, you know, sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down, that's just the way it is. It can be, tends to be very bulky foreign direct investment because people come and make a decision, an investment decision, they bring a lot of money, then you have to wait for someone else to bring a big chunk of money. So it, it can be quite sort of um, blocky and bulky. But it's, it's really that um, many Malaysian uh, companies are looking overseas, particularly in the ASEAN region, and also in China also, but mainly in ASEAN region, and saying, you know, it makes sense for me to go and locate there. And that's often a sign of success 
because you're then creating Malaysian multinational corporations because they're suddenly not just here in Malaysia, they're here in Malaysia and in Vietnam and in Indonesia, sometimes in Singapore and places like that. And so they, they're actually growing. It's a sign of growth for, for those companies. So inflow and outflow of foreign direct investment has to be viewed in that way mm. because if, they, if Malaysian companies invest overseas, they get an inflow of income. So that helps in the trade balance, you know, in terms of the cap and, the, and the financial flows in the capital account. And of course, what we know about Malaysia is a great deal of the economy is driven by trade. So it, whether you're producing here and trading out or producing somewhere else and repatriating the, the profits from that, it's all good. It's all good in the pot. Yeah. Right. On the show with me today is Geoffrey Williams, an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. After the break, I'll be asking him if Malaysia is stuck in the middle income trap. We'll be back with more on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Geoffrey Williams, an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. And he's helping me make sense of the economy of Malaysia. Now, something that Malaysia has been, or at least at one point, was very obsessed with, um, particularly Abtun Dr. Mahade, is automobile manufacturing. You know, he's the one that started the, the national car back in the day. You know, Proto, now we have Perudua. Um, you know, perhaps you can briefly um, touch on the importance of automobile manufacturing in Malaysia to our economic growth, and how has that fared in recent years? So... This investment in automotive in particular is one of these things we were talking about just a moment ago. You remember I said that the government can play a role mm. uh, historically of the different Malaysia plans and all of this. The government can play a role as a catalyst to try to encourage um, investment in um, higher value, high tech manufacturing as it was, it was then. I mean, even now it still is actually. And this is one of the main areas where historically Malaysia has invested in high value, high uh, quality, high tech manufacturing. And despite what people say, actually, the Malaysian automotive industry is really, really very good. Actually, I'm a huge fan of the Malaysian automotive industry. Right. Read, I don't know how many Malaysian cars. I constantly buy these Malaysian cars. And I think <laughs> that the quality of these cars is improving. And one of the reasons that it's improving is because very often, which is related to just what we were talking about in terms of foreign direct investment. Very often, these automotive companies, whether it's Proton or UMW or Perodua or any of these guys, they are working in partnership with foreign companies of different types, right? We know what the Nagili and Toyota and all of these guys. And that is part of this process we were talking about in terms of technology transfer, technology, um, building technology, moving into higher value added activities. And apart from the automotive companies themselves, there are very many wider value adding aspects to that in the supply chain, for example. So the, the, the automotive companies are big purchasers of just about everything. They're big purchasers of rubber, they're big purchasers of carpeting, they're big purchasers of paint, of course, of steel and machinery and right. all of this. And this is all creating workforce suppliers. Without that, 
you would have um, a very big gap, a big vacuum for these uh, supply chain companies, which are often very small. Some, some of them are, and, and they rely upon that. So, and, but then also in terms of technologists and engineers and designers, and these type of people um, would, would find it very difficult to find work if it weren't for these type of companies. And they are employed in very large numbers, right? And so for me, it does have that very important developmental process. Although, as we know, over time, it's, it's had its ups and downs in terms of, certainly in terms of quality and in terms of um, the type of products that it's selling. And it's also struggled to find an export market. Certainly the protection for the Malaysian um, car company has been a very important in making it viable. But now I think that uh, the Malaysian car industry is really very viable mm. and the quality is very good. One thing that when I talk to, you know, just, just casual conversations, either you overhear, you know, people in the mamaks talking, you know, people in the kopitiam, or when you, you know, talk to family and all of that, uh, people always talk about this time in Malaysia's history, you know, the 70s and all of that, mm. where we were the um, Asian tiger, you know. Um, I was born in the 90s, so I never experienced that that whole Asian tiger and we are one of the best countries in Asia or, you know, the best country in Asia. But with that in mind, right, how did we go from, you know, being the Asian tiger to where we are today? What went wrong or it, did something go wrong at all? Well... If we look at it from the perspective of these stages of development that we mentioned before, you know, you start with agrarian economy and then you move into manufacturing and then you move into services. As part of that sort of idea of how economic growth works, you would expect that as an economy grows, the rate of growth would slow. Right. You, you generally, and you see that, you sort of see that in the, uh, in the data and you would expect it. So you can't be a tiger for the whole of your life. <laughs> okay. But then also what we were talking about in terms of um, the, com the competition from other countries. Malaysia had a first mover advantage, but Malaysia is actually quite small with a population of only 30 million. So there's only a limit of what it can do in terms of its domestic um, population. It has to be a trading. Um, it has to you know, be, a, be a trading country and in the past it's been able to take advantage of the fact that it didn't really have very much competition particularly from Indonesia or Vietnam and so on but now these countries are going through their stage of rapid economic growth and so you would expect relatively that Malaysia wouldn't uh, be growing so quickly so in some senses it's not a question of what went wrong although I'm sure a lot of Malaysian commentators will have various comments about what the government did and what it didn't do, and so I leave it to them to decide what they did and what it didn't do and all of that. Right. What I would suggest is that it's actually part of a, a natural process in the growth story, in the growth narrative. We would expect that as economies mature and that as they grow, they would grow more slowly. Mm. So... Something else um, I came across, right, and, and this is perhaps related to what you were talking about, about, you know, 
after a certain point, the growth is a little little bit slower. Perhaps, you know, it, it reaches a point of plateau. Um, um, what I came across was... Um, you know, this notion that Malaysia is stuck in a middle-income trap. Now, what exactly is a middle-income trap and do you agree that we are stuck in it? I don't agree that we're stuck in it because okay. actually the middle-income trap, just between you and me and anyone, <laughs> anyone listening to the show, the middle-income tra- trap is actually pretty fake. It, right. it doesn't have any particular meaning. This idea of high-income low income, upper middle income, lower middle income is purely a a classification produced by the World Bank and other development uh, financial institutions to decide which countries qualify for development assistance and which don't. So it doesn't really make, um, it doesn't have any real economic um, sense to it. It's a narrative, actually. And I was reading just uh, the other day, a, a, a discussion of this by the World Bank here in Malaysia, where they asked this question, what is the middle income trap and what does it mean? And they said the same thing. They basically said it's a narrative. It's a way of us understanding these things. But actually, if you look at the data, it's not particularly clear. Now, if you were to look at different indicators, for example, not just income, you could see that there are some countries which are high income, according to the World Bank. But according to the United Nations, they would still be developed economies or developing economies. rather, And in fact, in some instances, relatively underdeveloped economies. For example, a country like Saudi Arabia is high income because it has a lot of oil. But in terms of its uh, development stage, it doesn't have much of a manufacturing uh, uh, sector. It still has um, infrastructural issues that it has to build roads, it has to build railways and all of these sort of things, which it doesn't have. So if you look at it from those developmental indicators from the United Nations perspective, you wouldn't consider that to be a highly developed economy, although it is a high income economy. Mm. Now, for Malaysia, people have often talked about this middle income trap, and it comes from this idea that there is a stage in your in your growth phase where you're struggling to get out of this um, low value added type of activity, often uh, associated with low wages, and then to push into a high value added type of activity with higher wages, because that's where the income measure comes from. And there's some you know there's some idea that it's difficult to to make that transition. Okay, but. Just as we were talking about before, comparing, for example, Malaysia with Korea, the fact is that every country has its own development history and every country has its own resource base and every country has opportunities associated uniquely with that country, um, which make their growth, growth potential, growth trajectory different to another country. Now, my personal view is that Malaysia is going to reach the high income status Um, Anyway, it will do it anyway. In fact, in the 10th Malaysia plan, which came out in 2010, um, they gave a target that by 2020 we would get to high income and we didn't. And even then at that time, we predicted it wouldn't happen. (laughs) But now we predict it will happen just of its own accord, you know, just because of the nature, the organic growth of the economy, you will get there in the end. But what we're very much more interested in is not so much the per capita income but questions of the quality of growth. 
and questions about the distribution of that income. You could have high average income, but you still have a lot of people who are very poor. Yes. Absolutely poor, relatively poor. And because of COVID, of course, many people have shifted down. Previously, there would be M40. Now they're below the B40 threshold as it was before. So that even more people are poor. Many people are underemployed. Now, that means we need to focus very much more on the quality of growth as well as the quantity. We must focus on the quantity of growth, but also the quality of the growth and the distribution of the growth. And particularly using the benefits of that growth to provide a social welfare infrastructure so that people who are not able to, to take part in it, not able to work for various reasons, perhaps they've retired, perhaps they're still at school, for example, they always have those two groups, but then there are people in a working age who for various reasons are not able to build their own um, the social protection, their own pension, for example, you need to use the benefits of that growth profile to help them. It's very, and that adds to the quality of growth. And what's very important to remember is that's an investment and it's not a cost. You're, it's not a question of saying, oh, well, I take away from the rich and I give it to the poor and that means we suffer uh, in terms of lower growth in the future, where are we going to get investment? Actually, that sort of redistributive process can actually raise the quality of uh, overall economic activity, and it can actually raise the rate of economic growth or maintain the rate of economic growth. So one of the things predicted by this type of theory by the World Bank, for example, is that when um, countries move into the higher income group, they tend to have a lower rate of long-term growth as a consequence. Now, I'm of the view that we can move into the higher income group and maintain a high rate of economic growth after that. And, but that's a different mindset and it's a different approach. Mm. And it comes from the fact that I don't believe in this idea of a middle income tax. <laughs> <laughs> you, you brought up this idea of quality, right? And I want to explore that just a little bit more because, um, you know, if... You know, from the from a quantity perspective, like you said, I mean, it's inevitable we're going to reach the high income status and, and all of that. Why then are a lot of Malaysians leaving the country? And I'm not talking about those who leave for social freedoms, but I'm talking about those who uh, leave for um, economic opportunities because they feel that, you know, there's nothing in Malaysia left. You know, um, there's, you know, you hear these things all the time, right? Malaysia is a lost cause, um, you know, and all of these things. So how does that relate? Relate to where Malaysia's economy is? Well, this idea of, of people leaving to go somewhere else, as a, you know, there's a brain drain, mm. is, is of some concern to some people. In fact, it's of some concern to many people. For me, I wouldn't consider that to be a matter of concern, really. It's a question of personal choice. And often they will go overseas simply because there aren't opportunities here for them, or they don't perceive that there are opportunities for them. But you know, Malaysia is also a very successful country in attracting foreign talent. That's true. So if you look at, it's like we were talking about the balance of foreign direct investment in terms of capital. Sometimes Malaysian companies invest overseas and foreign companies invest here. We're really looking at the balance is what's important. And I, I am of the view that when you're looking at Malaysians going to work overseas, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And then when you're looking at attracting foreign talent, this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And so, so long as Malaysia is open to attracting foreign talent and is 
welcoming to foreign talent and makes it easy for people to come and uh, easy for people to stay and easy for people to make a contribution, then you're, you're mixing that diversity. And just as I was talking about having foreign direct investment as an important source of technology transfer and diversity in terms of economic growth opportunities and industrial opportunities and business opportunities, mixing people as well is also a very important aspect of um, creating a much more dynamic and much more diverse and much more exciting and much more creative economy. And as we move into the fourth industrial revolution, it's actually that type of diversity that will be a strength, in my view, of the future economic growth. Now, Geoffrey, as we wrap up this conversation, I want to perhaps um, just discuss a radical, perhaps it's radical, perhaps it's not, right, idea with you. Because um, in recent years especially, we are seeing an increasing number of people unhappy with massive development, especially when it comes to deforestation, degazettement, um, you know, mining of, of lakes, um, you know, environmentalists talk about biodiversity, biodiversity loss. Um, is there a way for Malaysia? It's been many decades since independence. Our economy has been run a certain way and evolved naturally a certain way for many, many years. Is there a way for Malaysia to, you know, radically change its approach to econo- uh, to the economy um, to something completely different, perhaps like, you know, focusing on agriculture or ecotourism? Uh, yes, there is. And also because of the process of the fourth industrial revolution, um, it may be necessary for Malaysia to start to think about exactly that type of new development trajectory. Because what's different about the fourth industrial revolution compared to the previous industrial revolutions is that the technologies that are being developed uh, are specifically designed to replace humans. Right. Right. I mean, previously, technologies would help us to do our job. It wouldn't replace us from doing our job. But now, we, when we have automation and robotization and artificial intelligence, um, Internet of Things and uh, intelligent uh, automation, all of these sort of processes, the specific purpose of these things is to replace people. So for it, there is an example of um, a, a, a European a car company building a logistical hub in Johor. And it's a massive investment for them. And it's very, very, very high tech. It's, it's the cutting edge for high tech logistical infrastructure. But what does that mean? It means no people. <laughs> it's all automated. I mean, right. there will be some people managing the facilities, dealing, you know, dealing with various maintenance processes, but relatively few. I mean, if you say it's, you know, this is 50,000 acres or whatever it is, 50,000 square feet or whatever it is, it's massive thing, massive space. It's very, very high tech, but it's not very high value in terms of creating jobs. And it's very much a part of the automotive, sorry, the automation process um, of the fourth industrial revolution. Now, what that means is it, it challenges us to, to ask the question, if we are going to have increasing use of technology that replaces human beings and creates value adding uh, activity and does stuff that actually human beings don't want to do. So sometimes we're not, <laughs> we're not sorry to see it happen, right? Because yeah. it, 
horrible jobs. So um, what are we going to do with the people who have been replaced by the machines, right? And what that means is we have to find high value activities for them to be a part of. And this will be social activity. And we say this is activity that resists automation. You, you need to do it by, uh, you need a human being to do it. You can't replace a human being to do these things. And this is, um, this can be anything to do with, um, like you were mentioning, tourism or personal services or uh, hospitality, uh, restaurants, but also personal services at home. We have an aging population, older people will need more care assistance in the, in the house. Now, in the past, we haven't valued these type of jobs very highly. We haven't provided sufficient training for people to do these type of jobs. We don't professionalize these type of jobs. We don't pay them very well, actually, unfortunately. But in the future, these will be the jobs that will be in high demand. And they will be high value jobs in terms of the social uh, contribution that they will make. And so we do, in fact, need to refocus and we need to start to have that conversation now because um, this process of automation is happening very quickly. Mm. And if we don't have this conversation now and start to think about a new growth model, a new growth trajectory, then we're going to find a very large number of people who aren't able to find employment because their job has been automated. Right. On that note, Geoffrey, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's a pleasure. And my cat also likes it. <laughs> yes, your cat was a fantastic co-guest on the show. That was Geoffrey Williams, economist from the Malaysia of University of Science and Technology, helping me understand Malaysia's economy. If you missed any part of the conversation, you can check out the podcast on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.